everybody. I have a very, very special guest with me today. Uh, once again, I brought on one of my favorite people on the entire planet because he's my sweetie pie uh, and my mate, and we fondly call him Dr. Zeus, Zeus Yamayanas, who has just come out with his new book, The Spiritually Confident Man. A little while ago, a few months back, we did an interview with him, um, really responding more to what was happening with the Me Too movement and said at that time, once his book was out, I'd bring him back with us. And he is back and it's a wonderful book. And we're going to get into the story of men and women, boys and girls, irresponsible behavior, and what it's going to take to bring us forward out of the patriarchy into something much more useful for all of us. So without further ado, here's Zeus. How are you doing, sweetie? I know you're upstairs. I'm downstairs like last night. Hi, Regina. <laughs> uh, we promised everybody you'd be back as soon as your book was out, and you've done a couple other interviews, and people are really intrigued by this information because no one has offered a substantially new view of masculinity, as far as I can see, in ages. I mean, Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, was helpful 20 years ago in discerning a few kind of simple things about the differences between men and women and how we function. But that is not what you're doing. So first of all, just give us a quick little overview on how this is not that. Well, I think the uh, thing that has, I mean, and that actual title uh, probably underscores the, I guess you would say the problems or the missed opportunities of typical uh, engagements of masculinity and femininity, they see them as separate. It's like a negotiation. Yes, it's not as bad as the battle of the sexes, but it's, kind of, it's more like the negotiation of the sexes. Well, that stems from a kind of metaphysical acceptance of the sort of inherent difference of masculinity and femininity as in some ways oppositional, as a, as a hurdle to overcome. And I don't see that. My, the, the subtitle of my book, The Spiritually Confident Man, is um, Pioneering a New Frontier of Co-Creative Masculinity. So it starts with a fundamentally different basis than most other men's books. Uh, if you notice, it, 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 basically this basis is that I can enhance my masculinity through a co-creative, reciprocal, energetic exchange with the feminine polarity. And it's not a negotiation. It's not a battle. It's a co-creative, interdependent endeavor that simultaneously opens me up and enhances my particular masculine energy through the contrast and difference of the feminine energy, and the same from the feminine side of things. You'll notice that in a lot of books on masculinity, we have, you know, this kind of reawakening the ancient man, uh, the Iron John kind of, you even had these promise keepers that would go into big stadiums full of men and they recommit themselves to being responsible men. And I'm like, where are the women in all of this? You know, women are never consulted almost on any book of masculinity that I have actually read. And I've read many, many of them. So there's a few things that really, really foundational differences between my approach and many men's studies type books. And the first and most important is this notion of co-creativity. One, that the feminine should be valued and energetically as some gift to the world in and of itself, not something to be mansplained or incorporated into the masculine and dominated by the masculine. And at the same time, allowing that to influence me and my own masculine energy to reach out to that in a co-creative endeavor. You know, it seems so obvious because... Um, as you just mentioned, these other books don't really bring women into the story. And the fact of the matter is, half the story is women. I mean, men are trying to, I know that they're having a difficult time redefining themselves in these times, but no definition is going to happen if you don't include the other half of the planet. <laughs> and so I think that's what your book has done really beautifully, because it, it folds this in from the moment of conception, really. And it also starts setting up some of the trauma that happens uniquely and specifically to little boys, even infants, and how the trauma of the patriarchy is, is laid out almost from birth, at least in a number of the countries in the world. So um, we can go a thousand different directions in this conversation. So why don't we why don't we begin with what happens? And this is this is controversial. I'll, I'll say this right now. Um, 
it's a controversial topic. Um, I'm very happy that to see that you put it in your book because perhaps it's going to affect future generations. And that mm -hmm. has to do with what happens when a little boy in the Judeo-Christian world and the Muslim world are brought into this world. And it, it, even though numbers are shifting a bit, certainly in recent generations, this is something that we have all had to deal with. And that is the subject of circumcision. Let's talk mm -hmm. about that for a minute. Because I have to say right up, probably my biggest regret of my life is I didn't stand up for my son when he was two days old and tell the doctor no, because I didn't know enough. I didn't have the courage at that time. And it is a huge regret. And I know many other mothers feel the same way. So let's talk about it. Well, first of all, I want to, I, I, because we're, we're using the word patriarchy, and I want to make sure that we understand what it is before going forward, because it helps to set up this issue of male circumcision. And uh, patriarchy is a ruling mentality. It's not just ruled by men, though it's sometimes defined that way, because women can be patriarchs and men can be anti-patriarchal. But it is, a, in a sense, it is, is an attempt to dominate or create a precedent in the world which says, I own you, I possess you, or I am over you. And that is the thing to really remember about patriarchy. Uh, circumcision fits well into this one because it happens so early. And, and with a defenseless child, baby boy that's only two, three, maybe eight days old. And the reasons given for it really don't hold water in my mind. Um, if you look into the history of it, as I do in my, in my book, I do discuss the issue of, of um, circumcision. You find that many of the ideas bandied around today are post hoc rationales. Post hoc meaning after the fact. <laughs> and they, they were really never the reason why the, pro the, uh, the procedure was, was generated in the first place. In my research, I found that basically it was an initiation ritual to put the young boys, babies under the ages of the older men. And basically it's saying, you know your place. And I think there was an aspect of it that is trying to initiate boys into a world of pain. Now, you can legitimate that as a kind of tough love. You've got to toughen them. You have to have this kind of baptism of pain to understand that this is a painful world. But what it also does, and it does in a very serious uh, subconscious and conscious way, through a traumatic experience right out of the womb, is to say, this is a world of dog-eat-dog. -dog. It's a world of pain. It's a world in which you're only going to triumph if you can steel yourself or callous yourself against feeling. Just think of the implications of that and one simple act of circumcision. It is, no one claims that it isn't painful. People will try to apply painkillers. And, and, and your sister, she couldn't even, she refused to do it anymore, be part of that, even though she worked in that. Let me set that up <laughs> since we're on that topic. Yeah. Sister was with me at the time I had the baby and the doctor came around and as they did, they just come around in the hospital, Kaiser Permanente and take the baby to have him circumcised unless you say no. And she said, well, you know, he's going to be differentiated from the other kids of his generation. He'll look different in the locker room. He may um, find he feels self-conscious or awkward. It's probably best just to go ahead and have it done so he can fit in with the norm. And I didn't, I just, I was kind of weak after the cesarean and just not really clear in my own thinking. And I said, okay, well, we later talked to her and she said, as a neonatal nurse, she had had to accompany the doctors in this procedure before and she nearly fainted the first time and refused to do it after that. So I just want to set that up so they know what you're talking about, about my sister. Mm -hmm. Well, and here's the thing. I mean, again, just using that legitimation, well, he'll be different than the other boys. In a patriarchal society, that actually would be a good thing. Um, if you're not initiated into a world of pain, if you don't believe that life is brutal, nasty, and short, I think as Hobbes said, um, you become a different kind of person, uh, again, right from the womb. Uh, you know, of course, patriarchy sets up the alternative to that is this wet noodle, Nancy boy, this, this you know, possibly gay, 
individual who is going to be run over and abused and uh, and you know outmanned, as it were. Uh, the uh, the alternative to either one of those that that's a false dichotomy there. You right. don't have to have a brutal world and then a, a, a basically a naive world where you just get run over by brutal men. We right. can stop brutal practices and we can stop it. I think with with really really deciding not to have circumcision. One of the most ironic things about circumcision is that one of the reasons given for it was a covenant between Abraham, right, and God. That was a, it was start that part aspect of it was in the Jewish tradition. A lot of Christians adopted it, and, and even the Muslims, as Abrahamic people, eighty percent of Muslim boys are circumcised. So all <laughs> all the fighting in the Middle East is such a joke because if you took their all put their pants down, they'd all be circumcised. <laughs> this Christians, is very, Muslims and Jews all true. supposedly having this covenant with Abraham. So you, you, we understand that patriarchy in the end, doesn't make a lot of sense. That's a perfect example of that. If you right. want to help in that. Yes, and initially, there, it was a, more of a tribal um, procedure to make sure your tribe was marked differently. And this is still an issue in the Middle East. I did a story um, or a, um, an interview recently with a uh, an Indian doctor who's actually, I think, initially from Pakistan, his father was subjected repeatedly to the cruelty and humiliation of having to pull his pants down all the time once he crossed the border from Pakistan to India because the Hindus were not circumcised and the Muslims were all circumcised. And mm -hmm. so as a result, the only way to identify himself as an Indian was for them to pull his pants down, which happened on a regular basis. We talk about humiliating the way in which this one procedure divides people, trying to right. mark their own territory. And again, I was outside the window when the procedure was going on um, with my son, and I heard the screams and the cries of this mm -hmm. little two-day-old little tiny being. And I'll never forget that. That's etched in my mind. And so I, that's why I was, even though it's a little controversial and kind of brutal to even bring up, I thought we should start the conversation that way, that introduction into the life of pain and conformity, which kind of is a hallmark of the patriarchy, right? So yeah, I was yeah. going to say, and you'll notice that uh, using that example, that the distinction between a man and a woman because one of the reasons given, and I have this in my book, in some of the African cultures around it, was that the uncircumcised penis looks too much like the womb of a woman. It's moist. It has the kind of flaps of skin. <laughs> so uh, one of the other generating forces for circumcision is to, is to distinguish a man from a woman from a negative standpoint. Yeah. And, 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 and it, it, it sees women as in women is inherently inferior and you wouldn't want to be a woman. So you've got to mark up your body or, or, or mutilate your body in such a way that you distinguish yourself. To this, I would say, listen, feminine energies and masculine energies are already inherently distinct. They do not have to be, you don't have to force distinction upon them, especially through physical markings yeah. and political and economic inequalities. But it's from an affirmative standpoint. The masculine energy needs the feminine energy to be distinct, what I call polarity in this book and what other people call polarity. And the same, the feminine polarity needs the masculine energy to be vibrant from its own kind of generative place. By generative, I mean this idea of giving, the man being able to give his strength, give his energy into this larger project, whether it's raising a family, whether it's engaging a profession, doing my dharma in life, and then allowing, allowing and encouraging and inviting that feminine energy to come together with that masculine energy to allow creation to happen. This happens procreatively and physically when it comes to raising children, but it happens in other arenas too. The masculine and feminine principles, when they are distinct, you know, and diverse in that way, and they are exchanged in this mutually respectful way, create the best situation. And you just don't hear about that in typical books. You hear about women trying to retrieve their self-esteem and how to date a guy, you know. Almost from the woman's perspective, you see the same from the other. The guy's perspective is like how to be a real man. Uh, you know, the 21st century, you know, sort of let's get back to the woods and this and sort of. It's not engaging the crux of the problem. Your masculinity isn't based on reinforcing a role. 
It's based on readmitting, re-acknowledging the energy of the masculine as inherently distinct from that of the feminine and valuing it equally and wanting the two of those energies to come together. And that's what this book is about. The spiritually confident man does that with joy, with confidence. As well, he goes ahead and critically engages and attacks anything that stands in the way of that mutually respectful, reciprocal, interdependent joining of creative energies from the masculine and the feminine. Yes. And one of the chapters in the book, I believe it's chapter two, as I recall, has the typology of the various kinds of men. And there are basically nine different types of men. And these aren't the ancient archetypes, as you said earlier. These are everyday types that we can recognize. And you've done an absolutely beautiful job of I mean, on a really deep and profound level, explaining what motivates each of these characters. But what I found interesting as well is that you're not demonizing any of them. Even though we know patriarchy has run its course and we're really struggling now, the effects of the world are struggling under it, you're showing both sides as to you know, what, what each of these types have generated on the positive as well. So that's that really sets it aside from just, you know, kind of tossing rotten tomatoes at, um, at what you call, for example, the toxic man, because a lot of women watching this right now will say, wait a minute, I've fallen for that kind of guy myself. And mm-hmm. we can see why women fall for what you term as the toxic man. And right. maybe we'll just we'll just go through a couple of the types right now. How about that? Because we don't have enough time. We could do three or four hours and couldn't get through the depth of all of the types, because then I want to get on to one of the fun chapters on how these guys are exemplified in uh, in motion pictures. Okay. Well, I can do I can do a shorthand on it. Okay. I mean, just to give your um, give your viewers a, a kind of a, a little bit of a taste of it, I can blow through them pretty quickly. But the main thing again to understand is, as you said, that there are positive and negative aspects to all of them. And I say in the introduction, I am all of these men. Like I said, with chakras, you don't lose your first and second chakra as you move your energy level up. Those things still exist. They still generate power. And they both give us opportunities and challenges. And it's true with all these kinds of men, not only just within men, but between men and women. Uh, but they're basically, they're three, co- three basic modes of men. The, the first I called the animal man. You know, that's the sort of the man-man, the man's man, <laughs> driven by survival and then the sex instinct, and the social man, which is a sort of modern sort of evolution of that, it driven more toward belonging and caring, but also driven by a need for acceptance. So there's, uh, again, there's, there's always these challenges that come with the different men. And then finally, the co-creative man, uh, which is really trying to develop an interdependent co-creative relationship with the feminine in his life and with the feminine in himself. So under each one of these, I have a regressed, a transitional, and a evolved form. And they all, I said, blend together. They all have their positive and negative aspects. The regressed form of the animal man is the toxic man, as you said. I, I used Harvey Weinstein as an example here. Uh, many women, even, you know, enlightened women get involved with this because they like the pure animal uh, magnetism and charisma. There's a, they can feel the masculine energy there. Unfortunately, it's inappropriately developed, right? <laughs> so <laughs> instead of just being able to feel that and exchange it, the guy is trying to exercise dominance over the woman. And you get into those kind of problems where you always are made to feel less than in the presence of that person. Because if you're actually better than that man, he gets threatened, Okay. Well, that guy, that man can evolve into what I call the striving man, which is a transitional form, where he's not just trying to put down a woman or be the sexual conquest. He's actually trying to accomplish something in the world. But again, he's still competitive. That animal part of him is, is kind of having an overweening influence on him. And, you know, you just don't want to have one of these guys around in a backyard family, you know, volleyball game. He's the one that's going to spike it in your face all the time. It gets burdensome. Even though there's a positiveness to the desire to strive and the desire to accomplish, there's a, there's a dark side of it that you need to develop and mature from. And finally, I talked about the responsible man, which is the man that actually can provide, protect, sacrifice, and serve. It's a more evolved form, but at the same time, quite stoic emotionally. So again, there's the other side of it too. You can use the negative and positive sides of both these men to inform 
inform each other and to form the evolution of that man. This is something you and I were talking about when we were taking a walk, and it had to do with taking two uh, seemingly very different personalities. And this is political. We're talking taking Obama and taking Trump and putting them together in the room when there was a roast going on, and so to speak, where before <clears throat> Trump made the decision to run for office, mm -hmm. there was an event, and remind me, I don't know if it was which press event it was. Yeah, the Correspondence Dinner. Correspondence Dinner, where yeah. Obama basically roasted Trump. And what happened in that, what the perception of Obama is, is this gentlemanly individual. And, and Trump is usually assumed to be what you would call the toxic man. But let's look at that dynamic and what happened that day. Yeah, because I, I think Obama is a perfect uh, demonstration of the social man. So I'll, I'll just give that typology and then show how the two of them, that these two forms clashed. Okay, the social man is comprised of the regressed, transitional, and evolved forms too. In the regressed form, the social man is what I call a retreating man. He's backing away from the dominance and stoicism of the animal man. He's reacting to that and trying to get beyond it. But he ends up not showing up and stepping up in any fashion. These are the kind of guys that, 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 that seems like little boys. They, you know, they call it Peter Pan syndrome. That would be your, repeating, your, your retreating man. You know, he's not interested in responsibility. He's not interested in exerting power. You never have to worry about him trying, except maybe in a passive aggressive way to exert power in the situation, but he'll take responsibility for nothing as well. Now, the confused man is one who recognizes, man, he has to offer something, but he doesn't really know what to offer, right? And, and, and so he's, he's, a lot of times he's one man one day, one man the next day. <laughs> he seems very experimental, not terribly reliable, but earnest and sincere. And then finally, the more advanced form, evolved form of that would be the equal man. And that's the guy that is the, the really solid family man who can actually go out, hold a job, provide for family. Um, he's much different than the responsible man, which is the evolved form of the animal man, because he's much more willing to be equal in terms of child rearing and household tasks and so forth. So in that sense, women tend to like the equal man better than the responsible man. <laughs> well, he's yeah, more the responsible men, oftentimes one characteristic might be, for example, they don't know the name of their grandkids, but they're going to do everything to make sure that their heirs are in good shape. <laughs> exactly. A really good example of that. So you have Obama as the social man, and I would even call him an equal man. He has a pretty stellar family life, and no one really argues with that. Uh, and, then, and then you have Trump, who, by the way, many people say is a good family man. So he might be a toxic man in his relationship with women, but some people would say he's a responsible man in relationship to his children. He really integrates them. So you have these two, two uh, meeting of, of very vastly different uh, polar opposites in some ways, uh, ideas of manhood coming together in this correspondence dinner. Uh, Trump had already attacked Obama, jumped on the birtherism bandwagon and said basically he's not a citizen of the US. So he basically, was strutting his stuff, using his machismo to try to put down another guy. And, and Obama, you know, being a social man, he's not going to outright attack Trump because he's, he's too good for that. He's too civil, you know, he's, he's no, no drama Obama, right? But he still wants, because he's still under patriarchy, he still wants to get back at Trump. So at this correspondence dinner, he not only rips him about his birtherism, and, and the attacks that he made on, on Obama. But he just went on for 10 minutes, just he wouldn't let it go. He kept trying to basically try to humiliate him subtly by using his own words against him and by trying to make, it, make him out as a buffoon. And it's my belief that that was the decisive moment where Trump decided he was going to run to be president, to make a statement. I didn't think he wanted actually to be president in the end, and now here he is but he wanted to get back at Obama. And that is the whole, that, this is where you see the old style patriarchal masculinity coming out both from the social man side, which tends to be a little more passive aggressive, and from the animal man side, which tends to be more outright aggressive, okay? But both of them are sitting in the same soup. And this is a soup in which uh, a man feels his worth and identity uh, exerting it in certain kinds of ways that are not helpful, that not destructive. 
are not constructive. They end up being destructive. Yeah. And, and, it, and can change, it can change world history. These kinds of these kinds of personal humiliations and back and forth kind of one-upsmanship literally can yeah. and have changed world history in the past. And that was another area we were talking about as well, is what happened even during World War II. But we don't need to go into all of that. And continue what you're saying. I just want to th- toss that in. Yeah, well, I mean, to tie up on that, I mean, again, uh, this patriarchal notion that when you win, you have to humiliate someone, you know, which is what happened to Germany in World War I. And it invited World War II just literally years, a couple of decades later, there it was. Because the German people had been humiliated and been forced to pay such high reparations that it, it created an opening for a guy like Hitler. And this is the thing that patriarchies keeps knowing people. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a little lesson here. The way in which patriarchy keeps its hold on power is by saying, the world of pain and trauma has the upper hand. I'm gonna show you how to deal with and thrive under that world of pain and trauma better than these wusses over there. These, you know, counselors and, you know, wet noodle guys who are just going to like, why don't we just be civil and all just get along? Okay. So uh, with, with that being the dynamic, if you accept that the patriarchy is going to win, because you say, well, either I will be powerful and I might step on other people's heads, but I'm not going to be stepped on or I'll be this weak person over there. Now the co-creative man and woman, the spiritually confident man and woman, get off that dy- dynamic altogether. And I have a whole section of my book where I talk about the patriarchal ruler on the throne mentality versus the co-creative, spiritually confident provider of the feast mentality. This is where I'm a man and I'm strong, but I, I exhibit that strength in intimacy and in vulnerability and an ability to step up when everything is falling apart rather than retreating. Ability to engage and stand up to someone who's, who's really creating a mess and to do it respectfully. If it was the patriarch, a toxic man, I'd take him to the side and say, you don't need to be disrespecting yourself and other people like that. So one of the things I noticed uh, on a really practical level and certainly with you personally is that for someone to move over into this new territory, this co-creative territory, where you're having to kind of perceive your role very differently, as you say, it's interdependent, requires a lot of humility because there are going to be mistakes. Your men are trying, going to have to figure it out from a fresh place, and that requires showing up open-heartedly and also with some humility, which you're very good at doing. You feel like if you've stepped over a line some kind, you're the first to say, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, that, was, that wasn't my best or whatnot. Why is mm-hmm. it so hard for men to do this? Well, I, again, within a patriarchal society, image in many ways is everything. Men get rewarded for projecting power. Whether or not they have anything to project from doesn't so much matter as what they can convince other people about. White guys are great at this. They can sell, you know, ice to an Eskimo. I mean, <laughs> it just say this is really special ice. Um, and and the, the change uh, toward the co-created man and toward the spiritually confident man is the desire to get rid of the image and the presentation and present substance. It creates a real vulnerability, and it requires a real humility. And this is nothing more, in very straight, simple terms, than the desire to learn and engage over the projection of expertise and competence that you don't have. The fake it till you make it. I was going to write a book at one time. It's a humorous book called you know, man, Zeus's Guide to the Modern Man, Fake It Till You Make It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was the sort of working subtitle on it. It was supposed to be humorous. But, you know, there's, there's kind of a bit of deadly truth here. Today's men are, especially men that are in, you know, upper echelons, uh, upper socioeconomic statuses, are supposed to supposedly know everything, uh, you know, so that they can have the authority that goes with their higher position, right? And a real man, uh, a spiritually confident man, a co-created man, is much more interested in learning everything than knowing everything. And the only way you can learn something is to admit you don't know. 
And the only way you can get into a good co-creative, co, uh, uh, interdependent, healthy relationship with another person, whether it's a man or a woman, is to say, you know, you're right, and I could have done better. Or, you know, I was blind or I was ignorant in this. Um, and again, you know, being the willingness to say, I'm wrong, or the willingness to simply say, I'll try better, or you've got, even just, you've got a point. My point is valid, but your point is as well. And bring those two points together co-creatively to make a better situation. So a, a co-creative man is always trying to become a better man. And not a better man just in terms of a higher salary, or better in terms of estimation and the approval of the eyes of others, which would be the social man's idea of being better. And, you know, the, of course, the salary and, you know, sexual conquest would be the animal's idea of being a better man um, or even being a good family man on both sides. The co-creative man, on the other hand, sees better in terms of, um, I guess you would say, opening, being, becoming more open-hearted and admitting the perspectives of others instead of denying them yes. and yes. incorporating them in a kind of yin-yang way into a development of his own being and his own competence and his own ability to provide into the world. I mean, this might be a good opportunity to, to talk about the three kinds of co-creative men uh, and, and, and sort of dovetail it into this conversation. The first kind of co-creative man is what I call the despairing man. Now, that's the uh, devolved or regressed form of this man. Once a man, oftentimes in midlife, and the kids leave the home and he's a lot of his family man, equal man kind of opportunities have vanished, is left with a kind of existential vacuum, a kind of dread. Now what do I do with myself? You know? And he knows that he's going to die. And he knows that as a man, a lot of his worth has been based on either the physical world or aspects of the physical world, like the political, economic, and so forth. Now he's kind of invited in a spiritual direction. But he hasn't been given sort of the tools for it. Traditional male conditioning education talks purely in these no lower realm forms to succeed in the political, economic, physical worlds. A spiritually confident and competent man is not something you'll see, generally speaking. And because a man generally is taught not to show his ignorance, right, and to pretend that he knows when he doesn't instead of learning, now he's really in a bind. And this, you know, this comes in, in male development, usually around midlife for men, and he becomes a despairing man. What's my life for? It's all going to go away. I'm aging. My physical power is waning. You know, in my book, I said, when a man ages, this is his time. This is his time to advance into a co-creative man. That waning of the physical opens up an opportunity for the heart to open and strengthen. And that's what a lot of men don't see. A lot of men turn their back on it. They try to marry a woman half their age. Not that there's anything wrong with that if you're truly in love with somebody. Won't make judgment in that regard. But too often, it is really a desire to recapture youth or to come back, to, to turn back toward an age in which this person felt more, more clear identity and strength. But this more subtle strength is much more powerful. And that despairing man, if he chooses to become a searching man, which is the transitional form of the co-creative man, can begin to say, I can just let it all go. I don't have to pretend to anyone now. I can just, I can just open up the carburetor and go crazy. I can, visit a, I can visit an ashram. I can do it on a silent retreat. I can try some really interesting travel with my wife or partner. I can, I can let the world inform me through a spiritual connection and experiment who I can be. And I don't have to worry about all the burdens and obligations of providing for children and so forth because that has been taken care of. They've moved on in life, you know? And if that person is able to go through that transition, what they will find, that man will find, and this is true of women too, I believe, is a certain divine genius. You start realizing you aren't all the, your, the things you have collected in your house, whether the house is your actual house, or that house is this thing inside you, all these little artifacts you've collected, all these awards you've gotten, <laughs> little self-esteem, you know, things that you've tacked up all over the walls on the inside of yourself, you let all of that go. 
and you say, now I'm ready to full, in a full throttled way, engage the world and let what I call divine genius emerge. Now, the divine genius is an important point in this book. It says, listen, divine genius is something you have that's a spiritual birthright that you can offer the world that's unique. It's like a thumbprint. It's like an iris print. Nobody else has it. And your engagement with other people in the world can help you develop that and offer that into the world. And that's what you're really here to do. Child rearing can help you develop that because children have a way of just tearing you and all your egoisms and conceits apart. So they all prepare you for this movement into spiritually confident, co-creative living. And the spiritually confident man and woman is nothing more than the full-throated, full-hearted embrace of that. One thing that I find interesting in what you're saying, and, and I've seen some lovely examples of this, and that is when you see couples who are quite elderly. So maybe they're octogenarians right by now. Uh, the career's gone. The kids, grandkids, even great-grandkids have entered the scene. They're not the ones responsible anymore. They can just love them. And I, I've heard women um, talk about their partners. You say, oh, you guys are so sweet together. Look at that. You're holding hands and, you know, you're making lunch together and all that. And it's not unusual for the woman to say something like, man, he was a real bastard in his, his earlier years. But mm -hmm. ever since all that went away, he's just been a really kind friend to me. And right. you know, this seems to be almost a natural evolution of, for many couples that have the opportunity to grow old together. Right. And there is a mellowing, a, a sense of perspective that comes with age and understanding that certain things pass where they just seem so, so important when you're in your teens, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I want to bring something else up. I also want to see this not just as a mellowing, but as a strengthening. Yes. You know, um, it's not a weakening or a waning though it is oftentimes accompanied with physical waning, you know, you don't have the mental, emotional, and physical energy sometimes to, to be the kind of jerk you were in the past. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good thing, you know, and you know, I, you notice it with a lot of people that piss and vinegar tends to ebb a little bit as you get older for those reasons. But I want to talk about the subtler, but even more powerful, positive sense of strength that you get as the spirit starts to emerge, the ability to be more creative, the ability to engage. Your sister is doing this too. She's you know, engaging in a, experimenting with a vegan diet. She's experimenting with a lot of different things. And the fact that you only have a limited amount of time to live allows, again, you even to logically open things up. Instead of tucking in, you're like, hey, I don't have that much to live anyway. Do, do bucket list plus. You know, and in the case of masculinity and femininity, it's saying, what does it mean to be a man that, that doesn't have all these trappings around you, where, where I can actually feel the energy in myself, connect to my divine genius, and really begin to write, to offer things into the world, to be of service, to volunteer, to engage as a mentor. Um, all these kinds of things end up being the things that drive you rather than all these very, very kind of selfish personal markers of so-called success and power. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's the whole thing. It's actually more powerful. It's not only po more powerful from a spiritual level, but from an experiential level if you allow yourselves to go there. The problem is so many men turn right back once they reach middle age and try to relive their youth. You know, it's, it would be like, going to uh, those classic movie channels, right? Or the reruns, okay? And just, and just, I know it's pleasant and I watch movies more than once, not often, but sometimes because it's a good movie and because I can feel some of the feelings I had back when I first saw it. Many people have songs that way. Oh, I remember that. I was making out in the car when I heard that song. That song will never leave my memory. Great. I say embrace that, both and, but don't be restricted by it. You know, yeah. don't just do reruns, create your own movie. Yeah. Go forward and with other people. I agree. And one of the things we haven't touched on yet that you do touch on in the book, and I think it's important to mention at this point, when you say don't be restricted by is that this is not this story. And these types are not gender bound. There are women, there are women in lesbian relationships, there are men in gay relationships, and everything in between. We have a, a lot of iterations now where these exact same dynamics can play out. 
patriarchal toxic men among women, you know, lost and confused and despairing uh, men uh, in a male relationship, man on man, women, woman on woman. So I, I, again, this, this is internal psychic kind of uh, typology, you might say it is Mm -hmm. not gender bound. It is not gender bound. And you will notice that every man and woman have masculine and feminine components of themselves. They have to, to be able to engage the other. It's like the yin and yang symbol. If you notice, it's a wavy line between the two. It's not a straight, rigid line. Right. And there's always a black within the white and a white within the black. So the whole point of having femininity in me as a man doesn't have to reduce itself to this uh, sort of a, a sort of face sensitivity as a new age, you know, sensitive eighties guy or whatever they call it. It can simply just be a deep appreciation of the feminine and another person as reflected in myself, the ability to listen, the ability to empathize or sometimes called feminine characteristics. Who is going to argue that a good strong man would not benefit immensely from those abilities. So true androgyny is taking the best of feminine characteristics and the best of masculine characteristics and combining them not just between you and another person, but in you and within the different aspects of yourself. And that is learned through engagement of others. And that is learned by opening and admitting that feminine into the masculine and that masculine into the feminine. And that's always true, even in gay relationships. Even in intersex relationships, all these different versions that are coming up now, there's still going to be that exchange of masculine and feminine energy. And that's really what this book is about. And at the same time, you reinforce the notion that polarity is what essentially creates creativity and life on all levels. I mean, and we know that's true on an atomic universal level. Virtually nothing is created without what are you can say simply called masculine and feminine polarity. Although I'm sure throughout the cosmos and dimensions, there are more time, there are more names and iterations than that, but still you have to have polarity just to have the difference to meet in and create from. So right. let's talk about that for a moment, because a lot of what society's doing, I noticed this, I, I was thumbing through Vanity Fair uh, magazine recently um, because I, I enjoy their journalism. They write some fabulous articles each month. And I was noticing all the ads leading up to it in what seems to be almost a political attempt to erase any kind of polarity. The women mm-hmm. where they would have a man and a woman together in a, I don't know if it was Louis Vuitton or whatever, but you know, some kind of high-end product ad, the woman would be shaved head, a very dour look on her face, dark eyes, very more masculine, kind of brooding man look Mm -hmm. on this girl. And the man would have curly hair and be alive and bubbly and sparkly eyes. Mm -hmm. And I think if I were a young girl looking at this, I would be completely confused on some Mm -hmm. subconscious level. And I don't know if this is an overt agenda to take polarity out of society at large. I mean, shoot, that would certainly reduce population if you want to go to the big conspiracy. But mm-hmm. or something more subtle than that, or responding to some need in ourselves, and maybe you can comment on that because I find it interesting. Well, I think so. I mean, I think it's both. I think it can be an agenda and also something that is uh, has a legitimate impulse behind it. Uh, and we just have to be aware of these different possibilities. From the agenda side of things, I tend to agree with you that much of the desire to erase any kind of masculine and feminine polarity at all is setting up this notion of a sexless world, you could say for population control, but more more appropriately, I think, and more on target to set it up for the mechanization or machinization of the world. Transhumanism, transhumanism is the, and artificial intelligence is the idea that eventually we can download our consciousness into silicon chips, into machines. And those machines do not have sex. They're just containers. And their reproduction is not based through polarities coming together or the sperm and the egg coming together. They're just, they're self-perpetuating, right? They, they don't require that at all. So on an, on, a, on, a, on an agenda side, you could say it's setting up for that. But on a different level, a lot of this is, is coming from a desire to reject the patriarchally imposed roles and identities mm-hmm. that, that have been around the polarities and energies of masculine and feminine. And that rejection, I think, is positive. 
because it's too restrictive. It was based on dominance and subservience. It, it, was, it really, really created a lot of pain and has created and continues to create pain and really diminishes the ability to, to, to exchange those energies and be co-creative. So some of this is an experimentation with trying to do away with these hardened identities that patriarchy put around masculine polarity and feminine polarity. But a lot of times, then it creates a certain libertinism. Like, now we've got these shackles off. We don't have to be a man or a woman at all. Or we don't have to acknowledge or agree to feminine energy and masculine energy at all. I think you could experiment with that for a while. You're going to find yourself getting back to it. Because I can tell you right now, I can't exist as a man without having masculine polarity and, and being able to engage feminine polarity. That helps me become stronger, helps me to define myself, not from my, my ego or from the outside expectation, but from a creative standpoint. And interestingly, um, in my family, for example, I have a niece who transitioned to a nephew and ended up somewhere kind of androgynous in, in, in the way he expresses himself. And one of the things I noticed in the conversation around this is that he was saying that his group of people, which he's in a, a large community, uh, are mostly asexual. That sexuality isn't really even part of it. Expression of sexuality isn't even part of it anymore. It's a different kind of more emotional, psychological identification. And so that brings about the notion, a lot of people um, listening, because this site is based on soul and spirit and so forth, is that, well, the soul doesn't have any sexual identity, so why does it matter? And then my arg argument on that is, that is true as a soul. That is absolutely true. However, for reasons known only to the soul, we tend to choose to incarnate into a dominantly masculine or feminine vehicle for the experience of that in a given lifetime. And so how, however you choose to express it, whether you're straight, whether you're gay, doesn't matter. The point is that you've chosen a masculine or you've chosen a feminine vehicle for that particular incarnation in my way of seeing it, because as you know, I do believe that we have choices before we incarnate into what we're going to express ourselves as. Maybe you can comment on that. Well, I would use the example of the prism. Can you imagine undifferentiated light not going through this world, not going through a prism, and the frequencies um, fracturing themselves out as, as yellow and orange and blue? Can you imagine what this world would look like if it was just light? There would be no color. There would be no color at all. And it is, that, it, is that, it is that separation of that fracturing out that allows uh, that differentiation is the, probably the positive way to talk, that allows for more possibility. As an artist, you don't have color. You don't have the ability to paint, okay? And you don't have color without differentiation from that white light passing through the prism, right? Nice. So... Here we have the same thing, I think, with masculinity and polarity. Either you have people trying to romanticize the white light, that is, before passing the prism, as this golden light that we all need to get back to, and trying to erase any kind of distinction or differentiation at all. Or you have people saying, let's just escape the whole notion of light altogether. Like, like, we don't want gender roles, let's just get rid of gender, right? <laughs> and, and, and this is what I call pseudo-innocence. And backing down from the challenge presented to us, even dominant challenges, even unjust challenges, by deciding, let's just, let's just bail on this thing altogether. That, I don't think, is inappropriate. Neither one of those is, they're understandable, and I'm not going to judge them, but I don't think they're as constructive or as creative or as powerful as engaging what we're given. Whether your soul is chosen to be in the body of a man or woman or not, why not fully explore that? Why not fully accept that? Why not, why not fully engage that? If you feel feminine in a masculine body, be feminine in a masculine body. Allow the contrast of those two things to, to array themselves in such a way that you are authentic or consistent with those th two things coming together. Allow that conversation to happen. Now, it is difficult. You will be screwing with a lot of people's ideas of what you should be when you bring these opposites together in the same person. If you're a sensitive, huge, beefy guy. 
But you know, uh, you know, I, I, I look at uh, Jerry Wills, for instance. He's a guy. <laughs> he's one of the most laid back, sensitive guys there is, and he's huge, right? He does a great job of showing that, you know, of course he's got the body to back it up too. <laughs> yeah, Jerry's awesome. six foot eight yeah. <laughs> and taller yeah. with his hat and his shoes on. Absolutely. You know, he could toss a guy through a window if they needed to. So he can he can hold his own, but he doesn't use that in a way that, that lord over other people. He does it to help others. He's a healer. And uh, and a healing and the and the kind of psychic abilities have require this intense intimacy and sensitivity and humility on his part, you know, not bravado. So he mixes those well. He's accepted himself. He's accepted. And of course, we all go through these awkward stages of growth where we realize we can't not be ourselves. And we have this huge gift to offer the world. And we have to go through that courage step of saying, okay, that means I'm going to be bringing things together that most people don't recognize, you know? this great sensitivity in this huge body. You're supposed to be this dominating guy, but no. And instead he's of service to the world. So that's one great example. And I, and I would encourage your audience to experiment with that themselves. Let themselves do that in public, experiment with that in public. You're going to get odd reactions, but so what? How does it feel to you when you do that? Does it feel more authentic? Does it feel like these productive contrasts are coming together in a way that's making your life more exciting or meaningful or productive? And generally speaking, I find that it does. We just don't allow ourselves to give ourselves permission to do it. So Zeus, uh, let's just, just because it's fun, why don't you pick a couple of the films and uh, we can just cap it at two of the care of the way these particular men types are showing up um, as as expressed in a couple of films because that, that, I think that's just a really fun chapter because you look at it and say, oh my God, you know, that's what my dad or my brother is like. That's what my son was like, you know. <laughs> These characters allow you in a very kind of larger than life way to see ourselves and the men in our lives um, easily. So pick a couple films. Well, I mean, one of the ones that I really enjoyed was Moonlight because the, moon, the, the film is actually done in three sections and each one of those sections, literally the title of the three sections, is a young African-American man growing up who is actually gay, um, growing up in, in a difficult, uh, di- very difficult neighborhood. His mother is a drug addict and so forth. And he really exemplifies the three stages beautifully of the social man. Right. At first, he's a retreating man. He's a little boy being picked on because he's a little scrawny and, and, and guys are calling him, you know, you know, gay or queer or whatever it happens to be. And he's trying to come to terms with that. And he can't quite because he doesn't know how to fit in. And then this the second part of that film, he is a, a confused man. He has a great friend. And he's able to share intimately with that friend. And actually, they engage in some mild homosexual, you know, erotic activity. And then that same friend beats them up because the bully in the school insists that he beat him up. It's a kind of hazing ritual. So he's very confused. And then finally, at the end, he's, he's this very powerful black man, you know, muscles. He's still sensitive, though. And that same same guy, I think his name was Kevin, that he uh, was when he was in middle school, he actually reconnects with Kevin at the end. And they have this man-to-man talk and they kind of reignite that passion, that friendship they have for each other. He becomes an equal man. Now, not an equal man in terms of family, man, because there is an implication that they'll get together in a healthy man, uh, you know, man with man relationship in there. But what I like about that film is it one, it's a brilliantly, it got the Academy Award for best film that year and it deserved it by far. But it's the poignance of that, boy developing into a man and and seeing those stages so clearly revealed that um, that just makes it one of my favorite films, especially when it comes to manhood. Um, Now, now another film that we, uh, that isn't in the chapter four, but it's in a later section. I said it should be required viewing for all men was Don John. One of your my I love Don John. I, I remember when I first uh, exposed you to Don John, you know, right. exposed, no pun intended, since it's about pornography. Right, right. <laughs> it, <laughs> but, you know, it, this is brilliant. And I love the contrast. Speaking of contracts and differentiation, 
It's a brilliant film. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is the director, the writer, and the lead actor in this, did just an amazing job. He, was, he must have been channeling something. Because it, especially if you're a woman in the audience, you need to see this film as well, man or woman. The woman in the audience will get from this film what it's like to be a demanding woman trying to make her man just be basically manipulated to be a container for her own desires, right? To, to, to you know, be the kind of man she wants, to go ahead and provide the kind of living she wants, right. et cetera. But this that, was, that was, if I can just interject, that was brilliantly portrayed by Scarlett Johansson. I thought it was one of her best roles ever. So manipulating, yeah. really unconscious. It, but, but really unconscious, but yet at the same time, so beguilingly sort of sincere in yeah. her unconscious yeah. behavior. Oh, yeah. I'm going to make you do this. I want you to do that. He, she wouldn't even let him clean his own room because that was woman's work. And <laughs> she certainly was, pornography was off the table because she should be good enough for him. Right. And that became a big thing. His deal, he was, he's a, he's a nice guy. He's a guy guy. You know, he's really attentive to his family, his family, his pad. That's the place he lives. You know, his gym and his workout. Confession every week at the church. He does his church. And then of course his porn, because his porn and a lot of men in a patriarchal society are, are taught to get arousal through the objectification of women. So that's how he was doing it. And still, he's a nice guy. It's not like he's a scumbag. And so he confronts this Scarlett Johansson type character. And, 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 he's, and he realizes, oddly enough, through the reflection of another woman, that his own, the, the, the fallacy of his own objectifying of women, objectifying things in life. And let's not give the ending away in case someone does go ahead and watch this. It's I won't, but I do want to bring the Esther character in that was played by Julianne Moore. This is a much older woman, not much older, but significantly older woman that he meets at night school. He's going to, in order to impress the other woman, <laughs> that he's going to advance in society by going and getting more education. And what she does, and she's actually supportive of is born in a certain way by introducing him to a more feminine viewed erotica, right? She encourages him to look at porn that's not just this masculine produced, you know, grinding kind of porn, but this more, you know, story behind it or something. They don't show us in the film what it is, but we get the idea. And he learns to become more emotionally intimate and open and available. And, and I won't I get, throw away the ending or whatever, but just that's the contrast there. It's really great viewing from the guy's side because a guy can begin to see how the sensitive parts of himself get buried, even though they're very true and authentic to, he, to who he is. And you get to see the patriarchal training when it comes to understanding women and understanding sexuality. And you also, from a man and women's perspective, you can see the contrast between a manipulative woman and a truly supportive woman in a man's life. And the benefit of one, even though she's got all the right figure, like I said in the book, she's got all the right curves. She doesn't have the right respect for him. Right. And a lot of this book is about understanding mutual respect and how to develop that and how to stand up for it. And that's, uh, you know, that's brought out in these movies. I, I use movies from I Love You Man to Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. It's quite a variety of <laughs> Some of them are serious in the Thor Ragnarok, right? Showing it's a really movies. fun chapter. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to, to bring out these different elements, 8 Mile, the one with Eminem in it, yeah, I use that to understand a guy growing from a more toxic man or confused man to, uh, or um, striving man to one that's more responsible. So these are all, I, I use real life examples brought through film to help people understand. And the gladiator. I remember and that, the gladiator. The gladiator is the one, uh, is the example of the spiritually confident man. Yeah. Being able to stand up to injustice, but also not be governed by death, physical death, and understanding his life is there to be provided for others and to, and to reach a very high and noble state in himself. So it's all there. It's instructive, I think, but instructive in a more entertaining way, not in a kind of shake your finger at somebody kind of way. Yeah. So <laughs> it's more evocative. Yeah, it's it is. Bring out 
those elements. Absolutely. And you know how everybody felt about his role in that film, The Gladiator. I mean, women, men, everybody was in love with him because they felt the integrity. They felt mm-hmm. the exact thing you're talking about, this incredible coming together, spiritually confident position mm-hmm. of his character. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was going to say too is, you know, this book was written, it was written to help men find a new way of defining themselves and growing into their true selves. But it really seems to be more women who are actively engaged in that kind of like, and partly because women read more books than men do, period. So Mm -hmm. it's like women are saying, oh, this is great. I want it for my book club. uh, And maybe I can slip it to my husband and and get him to read it. And so it's not a surprise that most of your clients are also women as well, who are looking Mm -hmm. at how do you balance this? Why? my husband's doing drugs or doing whatever, and I'm feeling like I'm responsible for it somehow. So how do we cross this? How do we cross this barrier of getting this information to the men without pushing it on men and making them feel somehow obliged or guilty for anything they've been in the past? Because that's not the idea at all. No. And this book, like I said, I think that I think it is through this process of being evocative, evocation, drawing out. You know, the root words for education do actually mean to lead out, to lead Mm -hmm. out of somebody's heart, to lead out of their experience. And right now, men are in a a bind. They painted themselves into a corner. So they are experiencing a sense of threat. Now, you could stand back and say, well, you deserve it because you created the situation yourself. (laughs) And you'd be right about that (laughs) to a certain degree. But that's not going to probably help things uh, help transition into the next way. Now, the ways that don't work are coddling men or simply ignoring men or simply just doing your own thing. Women still want to engage those masculine energies. Um, you know, there are men that are sincere, but they just don't seem to have the tools. This book does help provide those tools. So if you're a woman, you picked it up and said, hey, I think these would really work with my husband or boyfriend or or with my gay son and his relationship, whatever it happens to be, then go ahead and share those with them. Say, read this passage, you know, because men don't like to read a lot, but they'll read a page or two, okay? Or get into a discussion about it, or even form a a discussion group around it, around the book, or a book club around the book, and then carry it forward from that. I think one of the powerful things about the book that women will really enjoy in your audience is that it gives words to the things that they've all been saying about themselves among themselves, but from a man's perspective. I basically say, you're right. <laughs> and there was a section in there, there were 14 different things I said, if you listen to a woman, and I put, like, these are things that men should be listening to women on, and actually list them there. You know, ways that would enhance a man's masculinity, coming from a man who has listened to a woman and said, you're right. And we need to do these kinds of things, not as an obligation or not because, oh, boy, the old ball and chain is saying we should, which is obviously a very pejorative way to talk about someone who cares about you as an obligation, but as a way to enhance the quality of my life and the quality of my relationship to the person who does care about me. And that's the whole point. Men have to get over that hump where they feel like I already know, right? Or I have to pretend I already know and get into more experimental, adventurous. Hey, let's try this out. Hey, I got something to learn here. Hey, I don't care about my image. I'm, I'm, I'm courageous and brave and daring enough to leave that behind and just engage and allow myself to step up and be present to this, uh, this challenge or this opportunity. I'm not going to rest on my laurels, and I'm not going to rest on certain statuses and positions I have. I'm going to actively sacrifice and abandon those in order to open myself to a new adventure. Now, they'll usually do that when it comes to extreme sports. Why can't they do that emotionally? You know, so us men have to see emotional and mental adventuring on a par with physical adventuring. And that's really what this book is about. It's about going on an adventure. It's not just this ponderous, you know, here's what, you know, 10-step method to become a better guy. It really is built as a way to tool, uh, to, as a tool to equip men and women to spice things up, to try to move the, the structure of the situation around a little bit, to open up new sensibilities, new experiences, and then allow those experiences to inform, to educate, to, to, really, to really do a number in a good way on you. <laughs> 
Exactly. And and I know Jerry Wills, because everybody's kind of turning into one big family here. Jerry Wills also interviewed you on his show recently. And one of the first things he said is he felt it's one of the most important books of our time. Um, he was just blown away because it's something entirely new. And so on that note, I want to thank you for taking the last hour uh, upstairs to chat with us. And uh, again, I know what it took for you to bring this book into the world. Uh, it's profound. It's beautiful. And on behalf of everybody, I want to thank you for using all of your skills and all of your heart uh, to put this book out into the world. Yeah, and those people that are interested in exploring more about me and my practice, uh, just go to askdrzeus.com. That's askdrzeus.com. And uh, I, I do offer counseling sessions around this, as well as you can purchase the book in bulk under my product sections there on askdrzeus.com. It's also available on Amazon and Kindle and print editions. So just wanted to remind your audience that. Indeed. Save me having to do it. Okay. Well, Zeus, again, thank you so much. I'll see you in a few minutes. Okay. Okay, Regina. And for everybody else, I just want to uh, thank you for joining us today. I hope this has been a really fruitful conversation for you and for you to share with other people. Um, I've found it an amazing journey to be part of this whole process as, as, as Zeus has been writing this book. It's really brought a lot of questions around in my own mind and my own interactions with the men in my life as well. So again, the spiritually confident man. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.